So, uh, so when we sat down and we had dinner, he said, look, you're really good at presenting the facts. Unfortunately, you're not presenting the story. Mm. He said, no jury has ever convicted or set someone free based on the facts. They've set them free or found them guilty based on the narrative that includes those facts. He said, but if you can't tell them a story and be persuasive so they want to believe you and then be on your side, you're not going to succeed. So he said, so you tell them the facts, you've got to wrap that into the narrative. And and you don't let them be bystanders. I was like, what does that mean? They're, they're sitting there listening. He said, yeah. oh, they're sitting there, but they want to participate. Everybody wants to, but this, this should be an interactive experience. I was like, wow, all right, had not thought about it like that. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dr. D's Social Network. Today's guest is Paul Glover. Paul is an awesome person, witty, funny, kind, entertaining, and talks about his mistakes, the things he hasn't done well. I mean, this is just the best type of person who's just willing to go there and be really authentic. Paul's had a hell of a life. I mean, from an ex-trial lawyer to a convicted felon to now a performance coach to heads of companies. I mean, there's so much here to unpack, so much you're going to listen to. And that you're going to really love and a lot of valuable life lessons to take away from this. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Glover. What got you into wanting to be a trial lawyer? Let's start there. Uh, I'm a performer at heart. And trial lawyers comprised of, uh, of two things. First, being a performer, you're in front of a jury. Uh, the spotlight's on you. You've got to welcome the the combat. Uh, you have to think about when we say trial, remember it used to be trial by combat before we actually decided, <laughs> I suppose, uh, the wrong people. Uh, and we just we decided we were going to do it within a courtroom, but it's still a trial. And the trial is composed, of course, of three entities plus bystanders. Uh, the, the three entities are the judge, referee, make sure that you don't go too far outside the rules, uh, the prosecutor, and the defense. Uh, so I uh, was always the defense, by the way, and I did not do criminal trial work. I did all civil. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the courtroom gives you the opportunity to enter into conflict within the basis of the rules. And, uh, and I enjoy that. I enjoy uh, combat. I enjoy confrontation. Uh, and I also enjoy being a performer. And the fourth party, I said, the jury is bystanders. My job was not to let them be bystanders. My job was to make them part of the story, my story. And so uh, as I worked my way through, uh, through the Army, I decided to go to college. And at some point realized that I wanted to practice law. So uh, I was uh, I worked in a warehouse during the uh, night and went to law school during the day. Graduated and uh, decided I didn't want to do wills and trusts. I'd cut my throat with a rusty spoon before I would do that. Uh, I had gone and, and witnessed during my, uh, my legal education, I would go look at trial lawyers, watch trial lawyers, 
try their cases. And after a while, you know the good ones, everybody knows my reputation. And I would watch them. And over a period of time, uh, I decided to emulate and uh, turned into a pretty good trial lawyer. Unfortunately, I was also a crook, but- <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, before we get to that, sure. why civil versus criminal? Why did you choose that? Uh, I guess because I was, uh, I, my job, initially was as a, a attorney for a labor organization, a union, Teamster Union in the city of Chicago. And, uh, and that basically was civil, civil work. Uh, so I chose, I chose that area. It's always interesting to, to find out why somebody choose, decides yeah. to do My father was a, uh, was a union man. And uh, growing up, I realized I didn't want to do what he did, which was work in a factory as an electrician. Uh, and, and so I went to school, but that connection between him and organized labor uh, was one that stayed with me. So I found a labor union, worked in, a, worked as, in the warehouse, and was a member of that union. And when I graduated law school, they offered me a job, and I took it. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, it, it interesting work. Uh, inter people but uh but not criminal that was a special yeah. t- uh that that i just didn't grab it hmm. interesting and you know you mentioned the defense part why not the prosecution versus doing the defense well, I, I i i'm the underdog guy ah i wanted i, I the, the people who came to me for representation uh believed that they had been screwed by an organization and I, uh, I gravitated towards that also, again, yeah. right? Uh, and I wanted to uh, wanted to represent those people who did not uh, normally have decent representation. Uh, so it just all clicked for me and I loved it. I love practicing law. Well, you, you mentioned the performance part. I think it's interesting that you called it that because it's often what it seems like when you see things on TV. Can you talk a little bit more about the performance element, how important that is to the success of the case? Well, I can tell you that my first two cases I lost. And uh, and by the way, I was coming out of law school, I had a lot of hubris, and I believed I was gonna be instantly successful. And I believe I lost the first case, but the second case really stung me, right? I said, the facts, here are, the facts are too good to lose, but I lost. Anyway. And there was one of these experienced trial lawyers setting the audience. And uh, after the trial was over, he came up and he said, you know, you've got uh, a pretty good opportunity to be really good at, uh, at trial work, but uh, you're missing one essential ingredient. And so he said, of course, because lawyers never give anything away from free. He said, take me to dinner and I'll tell you. <laughs> and by the way, that was fine. I thought, well, I just spent I've just spent three and a half years of my life and a lot of money on law school, a steak dinner to find out how to be successful. So, <laughs> uh, by the way, it wasn't the steak dinner; it was the bottle of scotch that hurt me. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, so when we sat down and we had dinner, he said, "Look, you're really good at presenting the facts. Unfortunately, you're not presenting the story." Mm. He said. No jury has ever convicted or set someone free based on the facts. They've set them free or found them guilty based on the narrative that includes those facts. So, but if you can't tell them a story and be persuasive so they want to believe you and then be on your side, 
not going to succeed. So he said, so you tell them the facts, you've got to wrap that into the narrative. And, and you don't let them be bystanders. I was like, what does that mean? They're, they're sitting there listening. He said, yeah, oh, they're sitting there, but they want to participate. Everybody wants to, but this, this should be an interactive experience. I was like, wow, all right, had not thought about it like that. He said, well, think about this. A performer who's on stage. When you walk into the courtroom before the trial starts, the jury is seated and they are starting to look at you and your client. They're starting to develop an opinion. By the way, that's what we do, isn't it? We meet someone, and even though we love to think that it's the talk, it's not. Within the first five seconds, you have a determinate, you've, you've got an opinion about that person by the way they look, the way they smell, the way they open their eye, whatever it may be. It's a variety, a thousand things. He said, the jury is assessing you from the moment you walk in until the moment you walk out. Your job is to understand that, that they want to hear from you, but they also want to be engaged with you. And so he said, you need to have, you need to always find an advocate. And you do that, by the way, it's called void here. Void here is, is the French word to tell the truth, find the tr truth. And that's when you see on court TV, yeah. uh, the, the prospective jury take and both sides ask them questions. And based off of the answers to those questions, you make a decision about whether or not you want them on the jury or you would strike them, right? You don't want them on the jury. And you actually have, uh, I think Dr. Paul started his career with Oprah as a jury consultant for her. Now, that's how important it is to make sure that the right people get on the jury. So that's when you find your advocate. You find the person for whatever reason you believe is going to be the supporter for your case. And if, you, if you're not good at that, you're not going to do well. But they're then seated. Now, it could be that during the course of the trial, the advocate is no longer the strongest advocate. You're constantly perusing the jury, assessing the jury. And at some point, you figure out who's for you and who's against you. And from that point on, that's who hears your case. Hmm. Convince 12 people. It's just about impossible. Trying to convince seven was my goal every time. And I would identify those seven and I would go, what do I have to say to engage that person in presentation? By the way, never put my client on the stand. Interesting. I am for my client. Uh, I don't want them on the stand because I know that they're going to say something <laughs> that's not going to be by the jury. I don't care how much I would rehearse them. The problem was not the presentation of the case. The problem was the cross-examination, right? Because if it's nothing but me getting setting you up there and saying, here are the 10 questions I'm going to ask you. Here are the 10 answers. Good. When the guy on the other side gets up and throws the 11th question in, the one you're not ready for, it can go sideways in a heartbeat. So my job, if uh, very few times that I ever put my client on, every once in a while you realize it's not working. I don't have a choice. We need to do this, but I really had to be desperate to do that. So, so I represented my, when we say we represent our client, uh, you, you really people, by the way, TV has messed up everybody's concept of this yes. stuff, right? But, but the reality 
that is exactly what you do. You are representing your client. You become the face of your client to the jury. You gotta make sure that the person looks okay. You know, we gotta cover up that spider web tattoo that comes down over your face. Probably don't want them to look at that too closely. Yeah. Right? Uh, so you can up, but you don't want them talking. You don't want them saying anything. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, so, oh, absolutely. At that point, then you perform and you engage. And, and at some point, you want them to like you. Hmm. Because if they like you, interesting. And I got really like, oh, absolutely. It's a, by the way, psychology, it's, it's human psychology at its best. Every once in a while, we would have used to drive my my uh, my clients crazy. Every once in a while, a juror would fall asleep. Just be out, right? Really? Come back from lunch. Oh, it happens all the time. Come back from lunch and bang, they're out. And my client, the first one, he'd go, you gotta, you gotta wait. First, I'm not gonna wake him up. He said, well, have the judge wake him up. I said, yeah, because we really want the person to find out that the judge woke them up because we complained. No, I don't think so. And I said, by the way, they can skip this part. Let me tell you what they're not going to skip. That's closing arguments because I will make sure they can't fall asleep. Yeah. If I had druthers, opening statement, closing argument, that would have been the entire trial. Wow. Because I was going to win that all. Oh, absolutely. There was nobody going to outperform me. If nothing but passion. Well, let me ask you something. So, so, is so that it was something really you're learning in law schools? Is that something they're not teaching the performance element of it? Well, absolutely not. Law school is a waste of time. Well, yeah, but, but why would they <laughs> not teach that? It seems like that would be a big part of it. Because they don't want to hear that. The academic who's teaching you the law does not want to hear that it's performance art. <laughs> that that freaks them out. That, that, the 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 law is too stuffy, too rigid. And reality is, you're the guy got to go do wills and trusts. I mean, I'm okay with that. Hey, why? There's a set. I don't. You don't have to be. But by the way, no client who wants you to do well wants you to perform. Hmm. <laughs> they just want you to draw up and be well. But trial law, no, see, that's a different beast. That's why so few lawyers practice trial law. Hmm. They're terrible at it. By the way, I, trial law is a communication process. And so I took that concept and I've applied it to coaching. Because if you are a leader, you better be a performer. You have better figure out how to draw the feelings of your audience in before they want to hear the facts. Yeah. That just a different approach, right? Because we all believe here, let me tell you the fact. If that were true, everybody in the world would be vaccinated. That's true. Of course, because who can absolutely ignore the facts, but it's not about the facts. So, so before you can convince people of the facts, you've got to convince them of the feelings. And that's where we run into this problem. And most leaders run into it. They communicators, they suck. I tell them the only time you'll ever be a communicator, good communicator is if you can figure out how to use telepathy. Because otherwise your message is so damn garbled that most people are scratching their head when they finish talking to you. So yeah. part of the 
process is a communication process. I resonate with this big time uh, because in my field of fitness, uh, um, as an executive and a trainer, I've always talked about the performance concept. It's so weird you're saying this. I said, listen, you're on stage when you're working with people. You're on stage. You have to, this is your Hamlet. You each, each and every performance is a feeling, a sense that you want people to buy into what you're doing genuinely for that. And so there's no room for stiffness of this no. lack of, this is your, your, your opus each time for that. So I, I identify with that when you're saying that. Well, and, and you then have to tie in. First, if you have to care. If you don't care, then the rest of it doesn't matter because you come across as not authentic. And people sense that immediately. Everybody's got a good uh, built-in bullshit detector. <laughs> and if you're in front of them trying to BS them, and they realize this is a scam or a scheme. By the way, there's some people who are really good conmen, but they only can con those people who want to be conned. Mm. And you, you can't convince someone who doesn't want, like I said, otherwise we'd, we'd have the vaccination would be 100%. So, so when I look at it, I go, if you're susceptible to being fooled, and, and by the way, we are, the, the content who fools you goes to your feelings immediately. Mm. Greed, feeling of fear, fearing of belonging or not, that's what they play to. Then they can sell you anything and do. Anyway, so yes, and, and unfortunately, company leaders struggle with the concept. Uh, they don't like it. Uh, yeah. I told them, wills and trust. <laughs> an organization. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it, but it makes me want to jump into, let's talk about the opposite of, you called, your, you're a crook, you said. Absolutely. We got to talk about this. Okay, so let's talk about this aspect <laughs> sure. of your sport, story. Well, and, and so we all have our blind spots. And the reason we call them blind spots is because we don't see them. However, other people do. And you can easily be taken advantage of, if you want to be, by someone who knows your blind spots. And at some point in my law career, I partnered up with a guy who was a crook. And I knew it. By the way, there is this thing that, that you should not associate with people to be like, but I was a bad guy wannabe. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm with bad guys. And it was he was the conduit for that. And we would go hang out with guys that, bad guys, mob guys. Yeah. And uh, I dug it. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, a, a, trial lawyers are adrenaline junkies. You just, and, and once you get a taste of that, you always want more, right? I've never seen anybody who was a coke addict that didn't want another hit. Right. So it was that once I finished with the dare, and when I was most susceptible was between trials. You see, all of the prep that goes in, and, and the, the, the formula is four hours of prep work for every hour of work. That's how you prepare for a trial if you're really going to do it the right way. Uh, but there was this dead time between trials that I sought excitement and he provided it. And because of that, uh, I had an opportunity through him to uh, steal clients money and did. 
and uh, obviously got caught. Uh, by the way, I also thought I was the smartest guy in the room. Right. <laughs> yeah, I had that ego, hubris. Right. I was the smartest guy. And I wasn't, and you could, I told the government, I told the prosecutor, you'll never catch me. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was, he was en enraged at my attitude, right? Because I was like, no, you never keep working at it. He said, you've only been at it for three years now. How you doing? Wow. <laughs> Those were the conversations that eventually got me caught. Only because, and, I, and by the way, I try to tamp down the pride because I don't want to go back to prison. I tell people, I learned my, I'm a slow learner. I learned my lesson. Five and a half years in a federal prison will do that for you. My partner turned me in. Whoa. Oh yeah. So the guy that I was closest to, who had told me, if this ever goes sideways, I will take the hit for you, turned himself in. And of course, said the brains of the operation is Glover. Oh, I'm just a dumb. Well, and unfortunately, I fit the profile because I had made sure that's what people say is. So he gets over a year and a half. I get seven, uh, and uh, that was that's how it went down. Uh, too smart for my own good, big ego, and associated with the wrong people, made the wrong choices, there's no question about it, uh, and then paid the price. And what was worse, my family paid the price too. Yeah. What was the... No, man, so, uh, a little more hubris. I took the case to the Supreme Court Yeah. and got a whoopee. <laughs> so, <laughs> can't, can't practice law anymore. The, the, the thing that, that made me, I think, I think the thing that made me the best, but also the worst, that yin and yang was that, and that's gone. And probably a good thing. I tell people if I hadn't gone to prison, I'd be dead. Hmm. I seriously believe it. And uh, it, prison saved my life. It also turned it around. In what ways? What was the prison experience? Tell me, let's dive a little deeper into that as you're, I mean, you go from being a lawyer to being a prisoner. What was that like? Sure. No, no, no lawyer ever wants to go to prison. It doesn't no. go well. Yeah. The, the, obviously, the prison guards hate you. Uh, the prison, the warden believes you're going to be the biggest pain in the ass ever. And uh, that's that's how we started, right? When I showed up, self-surrendered. The warden had me come into his office. Made it real clear, we started off the day by a full body cavity search. Uh, and uh, just just to, the, the humility, the, the the being humble starts immediately. Uh, and just things like you said, listen, if I ever know that you're helping another prisoner with their case, if you're ever even working your own case, I'll send you to the higher level security prison behind the wire, and that's where you'll do the rest of your time. So we had a we had a clear understanding, and my response to him was, I will not make my time any longer or any harder. And that's how I did my time. Now, the first two years I spent plotting revenge. I, I, I was set on figuring out how to kill everyone that I believed had wronged me and no. caused me to be in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, it didn't happen. And by year two, the self-reflection kicked in. 
And I'd never been self-reflective. Uh, I'd always just put my nose to the grindstone. I knew where I was going. I knew what I wanted. And I did what I had to do to get there. Uh, prison gives you time to reflect if you want it. And I did. And uh, over a period of time, I recognized that the only person that put me in prison was me. And that I now had to be in control of the rest of my life, recognizing my blind spots, my weaknesses. Because if you don't know them, believe me, someone else will not only know them, but will take advantage of them. It's not a fair world. We should not expect it to be. So we have to protect ourselves while still being open. It's a balancing act. Uh, and you've got to get good at being on the, type, uh, the, the uh, high wire if, in fact, you're going to run a company. And so when I got out, of course, can't practice law anymore. Uh, but I knew enough people. But, uh, that I decided, you know, something I think I've learned enough that I could actually be valuable to those people who are still learning and are running organizations. And because I had enough connections uh, with in the business world, I was able to start a coaching process and a program. And that's what I've been doing now for, let's see, I got out of prison in 2001. So I celebrated my 20th anniversary a month ago of being on the street and uh, developed a national coaching program. Wow, that's amazing. What was, take me through kind of like where you were mentally when you got out and how people reacted to this Paul versus the other Paul. Well, it, you know, and it's, uh, it is interesting because I got a, uh, because of the Supreme Court case, I was brought back to Chicago by my, my wife and uh, one of my sons and I was going to be resentenced the next day. And so I was resentenced and given immediate release uh, based on the fact I'd already done more time than I should have under the Supreme Court case. And my wife and I, uh, at that point, the judge said, well, you're immediately released. Uh, you want to report to the probation officer because you still have three years of probation to go through. And we were walking. Here it is. It's June, uh, June 2nd in Chicago. Beautiful day. And it's uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, the sidewalks are full, and my wife and I are walking. And uh, as we walked the five blocks to uh, the probation office, uh, I could tell my wife every, at every stoplight was looking at me, like worried. And so finally, about the third light, I was like, okay, what's up? And she said, well, I, I'm, I'm afraid you're, you know, you're not going to do well because you've been in prison for five and a half years. And now you're out here in the middle, this crowd and the noise. And, and I looked at her and I said, you know, sweetie, that was my nightmare. This is my life. And from point on, uh, I made a very quick adjustment. However, you don't ever not, you're never not going to be a convicted felon. Don't get to, you don't get to, I tell people, there's this thing called Google. <laughs> and so there's no secrets. Uh, I, I never professed or pretended there was. Uh, and yeah, people that I knew, in fact, I'll give you a couple of examples. One was uh, walking downtown, maybe three months later, and Jackson Boulevard walking towards uh, State Street. And I see a lawyer walking towards me that he and I had worked together on several cases. So we knew each other. You can always tell when someone looks up and you see that they recognize you, right? You see that in their eyes. And as soon as he recognized me, he crossed the street. Oh. 
I, I, that was a professional uh, instance. Uh, a personal instance was I was in a Walgreens uh, waiting in line to pay for an item. And as I stood there, out of one of the aisles came a person that I'd been very close friends with before going to prison. Same thing. He looked at me, the, the recognition was there, and he immediately turned down another aisle. Uh, you accept. Yeah. The albatross yeah. is around your neck. Uh, you learn to live with it. In fact, I decided that instead of looking at it as a tragedy, I was going to look at it as an opportunity. I learned enough from being in prison that I felt I something I had something to share. And I had to figure out how to share it. Uh, for instance, I do uh, I do the uh, pro bono work uh, at law schools, talking to their classes about professional responsibility, because it's a theory or it's a case in the book until you actually talk to someone who didn't take it seriously, and that's where I have impact. Man, I tell you what, this is rich information, full of so much stuff. Now, when you started doing, you. working with, yeah, for sure, leaders in different companies, how did they, what, were their, what was their sense about you now knowing that you're a convicted felon and teaching other people about their blind spots? Well, first, you have to, <laughs> I tell people, you never want to put me in charge of your money, so let's <laughs> not do any of that. Second, I will never be any employee. I'd be the worst employee ever. Uh, just not who I am. Third, I have something to share that I guarantee. And here's where, once again, hubris, uh, because clearly my background is a barrier for a lot of organizations. Uh, so I decided I was going to focus on a certain certain part of the industry of distribution, but I was going to go with family owned businesses because public owned businesses would have much more problem hiring a convicted felon than a family owned business does. And my deal was this, we would start off with a 12 month package, a program, coaching program. And at the very beginning, that first week, you were going to tell me what you wanted to accomplish. And we were then going to work at accomplishing that over the 12 months. At the end of that 12 months, if we did not accomplish it, you did not pay. Your call. Yeah. One page contract. If we don't get to where we've agreed in the contract to go, no pay. And of course, that intrigues people enough to at least listen to you when you yeah. say, I'm going to put it in the game. That's how confident I am that I can help you. But first, you want to be helped. Uh, if you don't want to be helped, then there's no reason for us to waste our time. So you have to make that same commitment that you're going to participate in the process and procedure or you'll pay me my entire fee. So we both have skin in the game. Uh, that worked and still does. Uh, whenever I start with a new client, that's how we do it. And uh, they appreciate the fact that I am not hesitant I actually uh, just had a new client came on board and uh, we had talked over the phone and he said, I really want you to meet my management team. So I flew out to uh, Oakland and we're sitting in the conference room and I go through my spiel, right? Everybody's got a spiel. I've got my spiel. And so when we're finished, he goes, well, 
what do you do about that thing? And I look at, of course, I know what he's talking yeah. about, right? I had a management team that I'm going to have to convince that this makes sense. And I looked at him and said, you mean your first divorce? And he called your first divorce. I said, that was a messy divorce. I usually don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's your being in prison. Oh, <laughs> and and I said, well, let me tell you how I approach it. I'm not I'm not trying to hide it. I will only tell you that you're going to benefit from my experience in a bad situation. Hmm. If you're looking for someone who knows how to coach and knows what to coach you, so that you can be better. So that I'm a performance coach. I, I don't I don't do life coaching. I, the last thing you want to do is put me in charge of your life. <laughs> if we're looking at your job, I guarantee you, I can help you be better at that. Yeah. And uh, so, by the way, there are some companies that go, eh, you know, not so good. Okay, fine. I accept that. You know, just like I accept the fact there are people who don't want to associate with me. But uh, you know what? I managed to uh, create a career. And it continues to grow. I enjoy it. The people I work with uh, obviously keep paying me, so they're benefiting from it. And yeah, and, and by the way, this is an extension of that career. Yeah. Podcast. Start a podcast. When did you decide sure. to start getting on podcasts and doing podcasts? When did that become something that you felt like this is another extension of that? I, you know, it's been about three months now. I think I've been on maybe 25. Okay. Oh yeah, and and obviously it depends on what the person that running the contact wants to or the podcast wants to talk about. Some people we talk about this. Some people we talk about business or leadership issues. I've got a pretty wide uh, wide array of uh, of things to talk about, and also I have no problem talking. <laughs> and I think I've got an occasional good story. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you're a performer. As soon as you said that, it's yeah. kind of funny. Like. The audience doesn't see what happens before you press record or hear what happens. And often it's in that 10 to 15 seconds before you press record, at least for me, I know what I'm getting. I kind of know what I'm getting. And you're like, oh, I'm bald, and, I'm bald, baby, bald and beautiful. And you're also, oh, this guy, he, he likes to talk. He's entertaining. And you, and you kind of get that from the beginning with people, you know, and I think for someone like you, it makes it enjoyable. Honestly, it does. Yeah, it I really does. Enjoy it. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, what you just said absolutely applies in the courtroom. Mm. You walk in and the jury's sitting there. They're making that decision about you. How you dress, how you walk, everything about you has got to give them a persona that they mm. like. And, and that's, by the way, I, I will do the same thing with a new client. I love to find out, I, you know, I do my research first, you know, I'm curious. I believe that to be a good coach, you have to be curious yes. about you. I want to know about your business. And so I'll do my research. And, and when I show up, the first thing I say is, well, listen, first, take me to your factory. Say, I want to, I, I don't want to, let's not talk, right? Like, take me to right. why they love their factory. <laughs> don't, don't, I wouldn't their factory oh my god i built this factory look at the thing look at that thing that works i'm like i don't even know what that is but man i'm impressed <laughs> <laughs> and and but so there, that's that's the thing i will go into the factory now 
That tells them a couple of things. First, I'm absolutely curious about them, but I also will get my hands dirty. Yeah. You see, if I we go right into the boardroom, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, all of that peripheral. No, it's not. I need to know you and I need to see your operation. And I want to show you that I want to put on that hard hat, right? And the pair of goggles. And, and if you've got safety shoes, I'll put those on. And by the way, while we're out there, I'm probably going to drop a couple of F-bombs. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we're in a factory setting. Come on. This is a, for an F-bomb, right? <laughs> and then they're like, oh, okay, we can talk. We can talk. Yeah, we can talk. Exactly. And that's a big yeah. thing because I think people even take this format. I, I often get a lot of people that come on and I feel like they're not necessarily their most authentic version of themselves. So they speak in a way that maybe they would never speak if they're comfortable with somebody, you know, and then over the course of the time, the real them starts coming out and how they there, you see the vocabulary starts to change and the comfort level changes like, Oh, there you are. There you are. By the way, that's what a good podcast host does, does yes. isn't it? Yes. The real person out. Yeah. Which I think that most people coming on, they've got a, my deal, interesting conversation, maybe make you laugh, but I need to enjoy myself. Yes. <laughs> once, you, once you start paying me, the dynamics change. Right now, <laughs> it's free flowing, isn't it? I mean, I mean, we've got no expectations except let's have a good time talking. Let's have and a good I, time, yeah. That's what matters. But yeah, I think a lot of people come on maybe with an agenda. Yes. Of course, I would love to think that there's 100,000 people out there that are going to hear this, but mm -hmm. that's not reality. I know no, it. No. So I, rather than worry about who's going to hear it, I'm more interested in the interchange, the interaction. First, every time I do this, I don't know. I walk away from it saying, all right, there's a little bit that worked. There's a little bit that didn't. <laughs> it continually it makes me evolve. Yeah. And you know what? I get it because, you know, being a performer, this is just another version of performance for you. And I, I, I totally like am into this because I feel the same way. And I've, I've done 342 of these and most of them an hour plus. And it's a performance for me. Every time I get on, I love performing. I love chatting. I love listening. And I'm sharpening a knife. I'm sharpening the blade. I'm sharpening my personality. I'm getting wow. better every time I get on here. And I don't worry about the other noise. I just worry about what's happening between me and you, whoever I'm staring down and listening to. So your story is so like, there's something about it I feel such a kinship towards. And the, the performance yeah, sure. aspect, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I give you a lot of credit, man. Being a pod, podcast host is terrible. I, would, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, when I first started, my wife was like, well, why don't you do a podcast? I said, do I look like I'm abusive to myself? <laughs> oh my God, I, I would be, first time I got a guest on, I'd like, I'd be, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, that's not the way to be a podcast host. You, the patience to draw it out no way I'm, yeah wouldn't yeah. work for me you know and so so yeah i give a lot of credit that's a lot of podcasts by the yeah. way man thank you oh my god absolutely yeah. i'm always pushing myself i want to talk to and for me like i want to talk to people that i just i feel 
something connected to. I read their bio or something. I go, man, I don't know a lot about that. I need to learn about that. I need to learn. And you said something too, it was like, it really hit me. It's like, well, people just don't do stuff because of the facts. If there was about the facts, then all people let's say would be vaccinated. And I thought, man, that's true because we're in this time where we're kind of like, well, trust the science and all that. I'm like, well, there's only so far you can go with that if there's no feeling behind it, if there's, mm-hmm. if there's no narrative. And I think that kind of dawned on me. I'm like, he's right. He's totally right. The pe- even if the person you consider them to be bad or that they're terrible people, they may be great at the performance. And the performance is what pulls people, not their ethical behavior or the facts behind it. Is that what that feels like what you're saying? Oh, it is what I'm saying. You know, I think, think about it. We, in this country, we can't even bribe people to take a vaccine. <laughs> Seriously, is that right? just crazy? But that's because of the feelings they have that they develop that stop it. So mm-hmm. you've got through that. And, and oh, that's a tough one. It really is. But but that's life. I mean, uh, that that's every relationship you've ever had. You've had to do that, that yeah. people with their baggage, right? I mean, you don't you're not fresh out of the womb when I meet. <laughs> a developed person yeah and some of that i'm gonna like some of it i may not i don't know we're gonna find that out and uh that that's a that's a that is a job but once you move into a leadership position it's not just a job it's an obligation and that's to me is where a lot of leaders fall down they somehow believe that somebody's someone else has the obligation to understand their message no, it's your job to create a message that they understand. Mm. And we miss that because we've been told how good we are for so long. See, I was I, I was self-adulation, man. I mean, I was the great. I, I won case after case after case, got the money, uh, you know, was loving it, right? You know what? Uh, you know, pride cometh before the fall. That's right. <laughs> And, and I think that a lot of leaders just, they, they miss it. They, they miss their opportunity. And by the way, I'm a statistics guy. You know, when we look at 36% of all employees in the United States are engaged. And Gallup does this, you know, the engagement. Yeah. This last one, they celebrate. We should celebrate this. I'm like, celebrate what? Are you kidding me? It's 36%. The other group is either disengaged or actively disengaged. By the way, the actively disengaged is where sabotage comes from. Mm. They hate the company so bad that they'll sabotage the company. Oh my God, yes. That's, they already show up. I mean, we know what the percentage is. 16% are actively disengaged. What does that mean? They show up ready and wanting and willing to do harm. Oh, they're toxic. They'll spread it to any other employee. Uh, you know, you, because when we think sabotage, we immediately think they're going to take a hammer and beat something pieces. No, the worst sabotage is spreading toxic disinformation to others in the workforce by continually telling them how bad things are, by continually telling them what they should be getting, uh, what they're not getting, not what they are getting. That 16%, I call them the working dead. They show up they're like zombies and they will infect everybody else in the workplace. You've got to look at that and go that we need not to have them in our workplace, but the group in the middle, 
that just show up every day for a paycheck. Those have to somehow you have to connect to them because right. if and you suddenly have 66% of the workforce. Guess what? This is a this is a momentum changer. Yeah. And yet it doesn't happen. They, they show up, yeah. they check, they go home. I don't know. That's not that's that's not being a leader. You know? No, definitely not. Well, I got to tell you, this is again rich, full of information, and uh, I mean, I wasn't. You performed for me. I felt the performance. Paul. Thank you so much. Yes, I, sir. I and you're doing good work. Thank you. Really. Oh Thank yeah. You so much. I, I give you all the credit in the world. Don't stop what you're doing. You obviously have a passion for it. You've got a skill set for it, and people need it. Thank you so much. You know, I feel like I needed to hear that, honestly. I, you know, you're pushing through. You're doing so many of these, and you know, you just sometimes you need to you need to hear stuff like that. So, thank you so much. Remember, by the way, you're hearing from the no BS coach. <laughs> okay. I don't blow smoke. I don't know how. Yeah. I can tell you that you are. You're doing good work. Thank you so much. Well, listen, uh, of oh, everyone man, who's, who's listening, Paul Glover, amazing guy, straight from the hip trial lawyer, convicted felon, uh, coach, performance coach. What a story. Thank you so much, Paul, for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Darian. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.